good morning, church. Several years ago, when my family and I lived in Springfield, Illinois, we got to witness a presidential visit to the city. And that state capital city was abuzz with law enforcement activity the whole week leading up to the visit. There were Secret Service SUVs all over. There were squad cars all over the city. The night of the event... There were all those vehicles going all over the place. There were helicopters flying above. Just a few days before the event, they flew in the presidential motorcade, complete with six huge limousines, totally bulletproof, doors this thick, windows this thick. It was impressive. It was really cool. And it was fun seeing our city light up like that, all the law enforcement and secret service going to all the places where the president was to visit on just the day and a half trip he was making to our city to make sure all those places were going to be secure and safe for him. Well, when the president left the venue, the hotel where he had given his speech and they had the big gala that night, when he left there to travel back to the uh, the airport, there were actually two different motorcades that processed through the two opposite sides of the city. And they closed down the interstate for those. They closed down then the streets going through the city. Every intersection had several law enforcement officers, and it, it was quite a big deal. And my wife and I were actually there at one of those intersections waiting for the presidential motorcade to go by. But it was not because we were excited to see all the activity and trying to hope we'd get a glance of the president. It was because of really poor planning on my part with our date night that I had taken Jen to a nice restaurant on the wrong side of one of those roads. And then they shut down those roads sooner than I anticipated. And we were stuck, not able to get back across to where our house was in the middle of all that. And as time went on and more time passed and more time passed, my frustration level keep get, got getting more and more and more because I was paying for a babysitter that night and I knew I was going to pay a whole lot of extra money. And at one point out of frustration, I turned to my wife and asked to the president, who does this guy think he is? She responded, well, he is the president of the United States. I don't care. I'm paying extra for a babysitter for this joker, right? So I was pretty frustrated. But we waited and we watched because we had nothing else to do at that point. And finally, we got to see the presidential motorcade go by, the motorcycle police, all the other squad cars, the Secret Service SUVs, and then the three limos. And I'm pretty sure the president, I saw him wave at me. I think he wanted to be on our side of the city. So I know that the other one was the decoy. But it was pretty cool seeing all the excitement and seeing all that happen. And you know, we do that, right? Like we make a big deal. We keep these people safe when queens and kings and presidents and dignitaries come to visit a city. We make a big deal about it and we make a big deal out of their safety. The president is one of the most powerful people in the world. So it just makes sense that we would spend some energy to keep him safe and to keep him secure. And it's not so much because of who he is as a person, but because of the position he holds. And, you know, we make a big deal out of these dignitaries. Well, there was a moment kind of like that for Jesus. Luke records it in chapter 19 of his gospel account. The gospel is simply Luke's testimony of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so Luke records this for us. It says, as Jesus came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, 
Go into the village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you're going to see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Well, untie that thing and bring it here. And if anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and they did as he said. They found the colt just as Jesus had said it would be there. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owner asked, what are you doing with my donkey? What are you doing with my animal? And the disciples simply replied, hey man, the Lord needs it. So he gave it to him and they brought the colt to Jesus and they placed their garments over it for Jesus to ride on. Well, as Jesus rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along. They were praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen Jesus perform. And this is what they were shouting. Let's read this together, but with some spirit, with some energy to capture a little bit of what it would have sounded like in the crowd that day with the cheers and the chants going out for Jesus. So let's read this together. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Did you catch it? Blessings on the king. Friend, have you ever thought of Jesus as political? That's the question we're asking as we begin week 40 in quest 52. We're asking this question, was Jesus political? And that's the question as we dig into chapter 40 that is before us this week. And this is a supplement. If you are new or newer to us, or maybe you've been with us for a while and you just haven't picked up your copy, I want to encourage you to stop by the next steps area in the lobby after service and get your copy of Quest 52. And it is just a supplement we're using, not a replacement, but a supplement for the Bible to help us dig into the life of Jesus through the Gospels so that we can get to know Jesus better. And if you've been with us for a while, maybe you've gotten out of rhythm, or if you're brand new to us, just jump into chapter 40. You don't have to go through all the other chapters yet. You can go and make that up at some other time, but jump in on chapter 40 right where we are. But this is the question we're asking this week. Was Jesus political? And the answer to that is yes. Jesus is king, and Jesus has a kingdom. So yes, Jesus is political, but not as we think of the politicians of this world. Not as we think of the political landscape of this world. This entrance by Jesus into Jerusalem was known as the triumphal entry. It is known still as the triumphal entry. It it was the thing that marked the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life before he was crucified. The day is known as Palm Sunday. Oftentimes we would teach this the week before Easter, but here we are. It's the place where we are in Quest 52, so we're doing it now. And I love it because it gives us kind of a framework to think politically because we know the political landscape in the U.S. right now is very calm and peaceful and not divisive at all. So, you know, it's just a safe time to talk politics, right? Now, this would have been the second triumphal entry into Jerusalem that week. The first one was by King, the King Herod, as he entered that city a few days before Jesus, and he entered on a war horse. Horses were used at that time by kings and, and emperors as a symbol of power and conquest, of military might. So the king had entered the city on his war horse with a military entourage with him. 
making a statement that Rome is in charge, that we've got this, we own you. But here's Jesus just a few days later entering on a donkey. Now, now don't think that donkeys were just a dumb animal reserved for work. (laughs) They were in some ways, but dignitaries and emperors would also at times ride the donkey. It was a symbol of peace. They would come in on a civil display, a civil parade, showing a peaceable moment. So here's Jesus putting himself at odds with the king. The king enters with military might. Jesus enters as a king of peace. It's a coronation event for sure. He's entering with this honorage, this celebration, the cheers, everybody looking to him. Now, did you catch what was special about that donkey? That it had never been used before. So he's got this young colt, and that's significant because when anything or any animal was offered to God, it had to be reserved and set aside for God alone, not used for any other purpose, but kept blameless and spotless and pure. And so here's this young donkey being offered to God. It's blameless and pure. And it's given to the guy. And I think probably when the disciples said, well, the Lord needs it, the man who owned that colt was probably like, oh, well, in that case, you're using this for a famous rabbi. Go ahead, take that. If the Secret Service had come to me that night in Springfield and said, hey, Mr. Fitzgibbon, the president's limousine broke down. He'd like to borrow your minivan. I'd have been like, yeah, that's right. He's borrowing the Fitzwagon. Let's go, baby. All right. You need me to drive? That could be fun. Like, no, no, you don't get to drive, but he's going to borrow your wagon, right? He's, he's gonna, and you know that if that were to happen, when that red Chevy Venture from back in the day went clunking by, I would have been like, that's my ride he's in. You know, that's borrow your ride. He's in my van. So you know that as Jesus comes through the procession, the man who loaned the donkey was cheering for him. That's our king, Hosanna. Praise God on the highest. By the way, that's my donkey he's on, not yours. You know that there was a little bit of pride wrapped up into that. But make no mistake, this is a coronation moment. This is a kingly event for Jesus. Jesus has set himself up as king. And Yes, he is saying, I am king. Right in this moment, that declaration is clear to everyone there. Jesus riding in on the donkey, he is king, but he's saying, my kingdom is not a kingdom of military might and power and conquest. My kingdom is a kingdom of peace. But wrapped up in that is also a declaration of authority and power. Because only the one who has supreme authority and ultimate power can provide and offer perfect peace. So Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of peace and only I can provide that kind of peace for you. So here's Jesus entering in, putting himself at odds with the other king. And the people are shouting his praise. They're celebrating him. Hosanna! Praise God. God save us. Glory to you. Glory to God in the highest. Right? They're giving the woo-hoos and the cheers and the shouts. But while all of that is happening, some of the Pharisees among the crowd, because you know the Pharisees were always 
the ones to make the event better. (laughs) They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. These guys are always the joy kill of the moment. But Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, here's the deal, guys. Even if all these people shut their trap, even the rocks will cry out and shout out with my praise. Jesus knows who he is. He's letting the Pharisees know that as well. But as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. Jesus knows there's only one way to peace and he is the only one who can provide that peace. He's the only one who can give true peace. He says, I wish you knew that your peace, the peace you're so desperate for is found only in me. But now, it's just too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes, he says. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls. They will encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place. This is uncharacteristic at times of Jesus. He's speaking prophetically. He says, you've missed it. You did not recognize it when God visited you. Here I am standing right in front of you, and you missed it. And Jesus is telling them, you've spent so much time, so much effort building up your kingdom that your enemies are going to crumble your kingdom to the ground because you built your kingdom instead of mine. Because you built your earthly kingdom instead of my eternal kingdom. This is a warning from Jesus to them, but it's also a warning to us. It's a prophetic statement to them. Just a few decades later, that temple temple came crushing down. But this is Jesus giving them a warning. That when you focus too much on the empires and the emperors of this world, you'll miss the king and the kingdom that transcend them all. Sometimes we can do that, can't we? Sometimes we get so focused on this. They did. I mean, these people were clamoring for a king. They were desperate for a king. They wanted a king. Give us a king. Give us a king to restore Israel. Give us a king to make Israel a mighty nation among the nations. To kick out the Romans and show them who's boss. Give us a king to rule over us politically and religiously. Give us a king. Problem was they just set their sights way too low, way too small. Their kingdom that they wanted was an earthly kingdom. Jesus says, here's an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus says, you focus on the wrong kingdoms, you'll miss what it's really all about. Friends, we don't talk too much about kingdoms these days. But we talk a lot about politics. Talk a lot about world news and world events and empires of this world, nations of this world. Here's the reality. If you focus too much on the empires of this world, on the nations of this world, if you get too wrapped up into the politics of this world, you will miss God when he stands right in front of you. It's not the politics are not important. Just sometimes we muddy the water too much and we make them way too important when the thing that's most important is God's kingdom and what he's doing in our midst. Jesus rode along the hilltop approaching Jerusalem, approaching the temple. He would have come from the Mount of Olives. There's a slight dip down a valley and back up onto a ridge along the temple ridge. And this is a picture from that temple ridge looking out over the Kidron Valley. 
Bethphage and Bethany here in the distance and Mount of Olives just kind of off to the side out of this picture. But Jesus would have been looking out over this. Obviously, this is a modern picture. Don't you wish we had pictures from Jesus' day? But the same roadway was the same pathway that was there 2,000 years ago. And this pathway down here would have been filled with hundreds, with thousands of Israelites on their pilgrimage up to the temple to celebrate the Passover celebration and the Passover feast. They'd have been making their way, singing the Psalms of Ascent as they climbed the hill through the valley up to the temple. And so Jesus looked out over that. He saw the multitudes, but make no mistake, they would have looked up and seen this kingly procession on the hill. They would not have missed it. They could not have missed it. This was a king moment of Jesus up there. And so he gazed upon them and he wept. The language there is not that he just got choked up or that he shed a tear that he was crying. He was broken hearted. He was weeping. He was mourning. He was sad and sorrowful while all the people were celebrating. Jesus was sobbing in sorrow because he knew. He understood the tragedy of this moment that they're shouting his praise today, but they just don't get it. He knew the gift he would give them, the gift that he as king would take the cross for them to give them life. But these people who cheer him as king today are going to miss it in just a few days. They were going to turn from him, turn on him instead of turning to him. He wept over the city because he knew that these people would reject Jesus as eternal king, and they were going to miss his kingdom. He knew that he was heading into the hornet's nest. He knew that to go to Jerusalem was a death sentence. He had told that to his friends. He he had said this quite some time. In fact, his friends knew they were trying to get him not to go there. He knew going into Jerusalem, he was going to come face to face with the religious leaders who wanted him dead And that's what was going to happen. But he knew he had to go there. His friends were like, you know, Galilee's nice this time of year. Let's go up there. Let's stay on the coastline. Let's not go to the place they're going to try and kill you. And she said, we got to go. And he knew that these crowds that are shouting Hosanna today are going to be yelling crucify him before the week is out. The very people saying, God, save us, will be the ones saying, kill him. And yet he still goes. And he still did that for us on our behalf. And he knew. He knew. In fact, right before he went up to the city, he had a conversation with his friends to tell them what was going to happen. Matthew records this conversation for us immediately before this Palm Sunday donkey event. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples. Those are his students, his best friends, his closest followers. He took the 12 of them. And privately, he told them what was going to happen to him. He said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, that's a title Jesus claimed for himself. It's an Old Testament title. He would speak this of himself prophetically in the third person. He said, it's going to be betrayed to the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. They're going to sentence him to die. And then they're going to hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, to be flogged with a whip, will be tortured and crucified. But, don't you love when you get statements like this in Scripture? But on the third day, it's coming back from the grave. Story 
has a good ending. So Jesus shares this with them. These guys are like, whoa, no, 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 no. They, they can't even comprehend this resurrection moment because they're stuck in the crucifixion moment. They, they don't have space in their brain to, to make sense of it all. They're like, hey, again, Galilee sounds nice. Jericho, like anywhere but Jerusalem this time of year, they want to kill you. Jesus, let's not go there. And he says, no, we got to go. And so immediately after this, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, she came to Jesus with her sons and she knelt respectfully to ask Jesus a favor. And Jesus says, hey, what, what do you need? What do you want? And she says, well, in your kingdom, please let my two sons have the places of honor. Let one sit on your right, one on your left. Would that be okay? You know, Jimmy on one side, Johnny on the other. How about it? <laughs> Jesus answers them. He knows the boys are in on this too. You know, mom may have been the instigator, but the boys went along with it. He says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink from? Like, you want to suffer this? And these guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're in. We're good. Jesus, we're getting, like you're establishing a kingdom. We want the good seats. Like, we'll suffer a little bit for the good seats in the kingdom. Jesus says, you don't have a clue, boys. But, indeed, you're going to drink from that bitter cup. But as for where you sit, right, left hand, that's not for me to decide. The Father, my Father in heaven, he's, he's chosen that. And then he tells him. He says, I, I don't choose that. But when the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were angry. They were upset. Furious. Now, maybe they were furious because of the timing of this. Like, hey, Jimmy, Johnny, and Mommy, Jesus just said he's going to die, and you go, and in that moment, you're like, oh, that's all right. By the way, can we have the good seats in the kingdom? Like, how insensitive are you? Maybe they're upset by that. Probably that's a mix of it. But I think they're just as upset by the timing because the other guys beat them to it, right? These other 10 are like, you ask first, you jerks. I'm one of the good seats, right? Because that's human nature, isn't it? Like, we can't blame these guys. We can't blame Jimmy and Johnny and Mommy because we're just like that. All of us want recognition. We want human recognition. We want the praise. We want the parade in our honor. And some of us want it in different ways. Some of us are like, put me on the stage and let people applaud. Some of us are like, no, 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 no. Just applause when I'm not on the stage. Just, I I don't want to be in front, but I want to be recognized. I want to be known. Like, all of us have this place where we want to know that we are appreciated. There was a guy who received a big deal award and this honorary degree from an Ivy League university. And when the president of the university announced him and introduced him, he introduced him as a very great and admirable man. Well, that night after all the festivities and the award and the celebration and the dinner, that man and his wife were on the way home. The man turned to his wife and said, hey, honey, how many very great and admirable men do you think there are in the world? She looked at him with a smile and said, oh, sweetie, not as many as you think there are. <laughs> One less. Well, it's good. All of us husbands understand at times our wives can bring us the humility we need. That's exactly what Jesus did next for his friends. He gathered them all together and said, well, you guys are clamoring for the good seats in the kingdom, but here's what you need to understand. You know that the rulers in this world, they lord it over their people. The officials, they flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, 
It should be. It, it might be. It could be. Now, it will be. In fact, we could translate this, it must be different. See, whoever wants to lead better learn how to serve, better learn how to follow. Whoever wants to be first, learn to be a slave. Surrender yourself to the others. For even the Son of Man, remember this is Jesus speaking of himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, think about this. Jesus says, listen, the Son of God has left the glory of heaven to come here. He's going to climb a cross that you deserve. He'll take your death so that you might have his life. This is Jesus' statement. I came not to, to be served, but to serve. The king of kings is the servant of servants. Jesus is the servant king. That's why we've titled this mini-series of Quest 52, What We Have. Because for the next few weeks, we're going to unpack what this looks like for Jesus, but also what it means for us. See, Jesus' kingdom is radically different than all the kingdoms of this world because Jesus is a radically different kind of king than all the kings of this world, than all the politicians and rulers of this world. See, politicians of earthly nations and earthly kingdoms, they they pursue power, they pursue self-promotion. Even those who make good decisions and are benevolent, and, and we would say that's a good politician, they're doing something good for the people, they still receive the paycheck and the palace and all the protection and all the benefits that go along with it. See, there's still this self-promotion wrapped up into it. The beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus leveraged his power for the powerless. But hold on to that. Jesus leveraged all of his power for the powerless. Friends, what we need to understand is that that's us. See, we are all powerless to save ourselves. There's no amount of good that you can do that's enough to make up for your sin. The requirement of paradise is an unblemished, perfect record. And there's not even one of us who's had one day without sin. There's not even one of us who's only had one sin on one day, unless you have slept the entire day away, and maybe that's a sin of sloth. I don't know. I mean, we all are powerless to save ourselves from sin, from Satan, so we need Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus did. He leveraged his power for the powerless to save us. But he also did that in other beautiful ways. Speaking to the lowly and the forgotten, to the outcasts and the downtrodden, to the people that nobody else gave any thought to, gave any mind of, and Jesus went to them. He didn't just look at them. He approached them. He spoke with them. He knelt with them. He healed them. He loved them. He showed compassion to them. He valued them. And so must we. See, Jesus leveraged his power for the powerless, and that's what we are called to do. And that means that None of us are the ones who deserve any of the praise. None of us are in that kingly spot. So that means that all of us, 
whether we are on the high horse of conquest or maybe we're pretending to be on the donkey of peace, you gotta get off your high horse and you gotta get off your donkey and you gotta get low and you gotta get your hands dirty and you gotta serve others because none of us are the king. None of us are the queen. All of us are servants. Here at OCC, we're a church where everyone is welcome here. This is also a church where only one is worshiped here. And his name is Jesus, and that's it. So anyone who is willing to surrender to King Jesus is welcome to be part of this church. And that means we together find our common ground in serving him and serving one another and not being the ones who make much of ourselves or being served by others. That's just just no place for that here. So because of that, we live on mission. We live on mission right here in our community. We live on mission everywhere we go. For those of you who are younger, who are still students, you live on mission in your classroom and on your sports team and on your clubs. You live on mission with your buddies and your friends and when you're hanging out and when you're going out to eat. And we as parents live on mission when we're in the crowds cheering and we better live on mission as people who represent Jesus at the sporting events. Sometimes that's harder to do. Sometimes we've got to repent afterwards because some refs just make terrible calls, but you know, it happens. And, and we need to live on mission everywhere we go. That's the call of Jesus, that we live on mission, doing good everywhere we go because doing good creates goodwill and that creates a good platform to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we do. So we live on mission to help others. And the ultimate help we give them is to help everyone we can everywhere we go, every day we live to help them find and follow Jesus. And that's who we are. And so we will leverage whatever power we have, whatever privilege we have, whatever resources we have, surrendering that for those who have less to help them walk with Jesus, to create a platform, to create an opportunity that we might just get to share the good news with them. This is why we do what we do. This is why we partner with other ministries here in our community and all over the world. This is why we provide safety and a path to peace for women who've been trafficked and abused. We provide mentoring to and tutoring to students who are struggling and who have been neglected at home. This is why we provide assistance to women and men and their babies from unplanned and unintended pregnancies. This is why we provide food for those who are hungry right here in our community and all over the world. This is why we surrender some of what we have to leverage what we have to help those who have less. And so we live on mission. But to live on mission also means we go on mission. That sometimes we get out of our usual place and we go to somewhere different because it shakes us up a little bit, puts us in a little bit less comfortable place to remind us of what God is doing. One of the places we partner with is Lifeline Christian Mission. And Lifeline they, they do things all over the globe. But our primary partnership with Lifeline is in Honduras. In Honduras, just to let you know, in case you're unaware of this, Honduras is one of the poorest countries in the world and definitely one of the poorest countries in our hemisphere. And, and you know, some would say, well, it ranks as first or second or third poorest in our hemisphere. It, once you're that poor, it's just hard to tell. Here's the deal. Most people in Honduras live on less than $750 per year. Take that in. Next time you buy a coffee, next time you go out to eat, next time you purchase something online or you go to the store, just next time you fill up your vehicle with gas, do some simple math. 
that the average person in Honduras lives on less than $750 a year. It goes pretty quick. It goes pretty quick. In Honduras, things are broken. The income distribution there is terribly out of whack. And we know there's income distribution here that's not that great, right? I mean, we, we see that. You got billionaires, and most of us will never touch a billion dollars throughout the entirety of our lives. And there are people who play with billions of dollars like it's monopoly money, right? We, but in Honduras, it's the disparity is even greater. Most of the money in Honduras is held by a handful of families and most politicians, and they leverage it to keep themselves in power and to keep other people subservient to them. They live lavishly to keep others in poverty and to hold on to what they've got. Politicians flaunt their authority over the people under them. We know that things are not perfect here in the United States with health care, with education, with employment. No. We know it's not perfect, but we've got it pretty good. We've got checks and balances. Even when things are out of whack, it's way better than it is in places like Honduras. Let me tell you, you go to Honduras and all of those things are broken. But you have this statement, right? You, you remember in, uh, when Jesus told the disciples he was going to be crucified, and then you have that big but statement. I didn't, uh, but yet the statement, this yet statement. Um, and he says, but I'm going to be resurrected three days later. And I love those yets and buts that we get, right? So here in Honduras, things are, are just economically and with employment and with education, all that. It's, it's a wreck. And yet, right? It's the big yet of God. The kingdom is advancing even in the face of antagonism because Churches are being planted and they're growing and baptisms are happening and people are coming to know Jesus. And our brothers and sisters who are there are doing kingdom work to provide opportunities for people to learn skills and trades to provide meaningful employment for themselves. That They're learning how to do that. There's education that's happening for the youngest children in hopes that these kids will grow up and break this broken system, fix things, that they themselves will become ones who stand above that and speak into that culture and help others, that they will be taken care of. There's medical advances being made and all of these things, all the stuff that's happening, they're doing good in hopes they can share the good news of Jesus with others. I love it. And so we come along beside them, not to tell them what to do, simply to partner with them in the good they're already doing in Jesus' name and then help fill in some of the gaps for the things that are missing. I love we sent a team down there and they, they do the eyeglass thing and they're helping people learn how to how to. See, they're, they're giving them glasses, and the first thing they read is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish in the pit of hell, but would live in the paradise with God forever. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. It's what they learn when they come to see it. And so they're leveraging these things through health care and education and employment to help people get to know Jesus. And they're doing good, and the kingdom is advancing. And this is why in 2024, we're going to send two teams down to Honduras in partnership with Lifeline to make an impact. One of those teams is going to happen in the spring is a medical team. And you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse or a medical professional to go on that team. You get involved, we'll give you all the training you need. By the end of the week, you'll be performing heart surgery in, in the, you know, force of... No, you don't get to carry a scalpel, right? 
But you don't have to have all the training. You don't have to, if you are a professional, we would love for you to participate on that trip. But you don't have to be, we'll give you what you need to know to help those people who are the professionals. And you might just offer some life-saving assistance to somebody, not just to save their life now, but for eternity. Now, in the summer, we're going to send another team. That team, their job's a little more generic, a little more general. And we will tailor some of the stuff you get to do around your gifts, around your passions, your skills, your abilities. And so that's still up in the air. But here's the deal. If you've never been on a trip or it's been a long time since you've been on a trip, we want to encourage you. Pray today to see if God might be calling you to participate in one of these two trips. Spring or summer of 2024. And don't say no until you've gotten the info. That's my cheesy little cliche phrase for you today. Don't say no till you've gotten the info. Immediately after service, I want you to make your way to the Honduras spot. And, and you get the info. And you ask God if he is calling you to go. Now, we'll have some other opportunities as well. Our students are gonna head to the Dominican Republic. We're gonna take a team down to visit our church plant in Tampa. And I know Tampa sounds better than, but hey, don't let that feed in, right? Like you go where God calls you, not where the weather seems nice, okay? And let me tell you, Honduras is one of the most beautiful places you'll ever go because the work that is happening there and the people there are some of the most beautiful people you'll ever encounter in your life. So you pray about it. And I know some are like, yeah, but I already got my vacation planned. Trade up. Trade up. And I'm honest. Like I've taken some nice vacations in my life. I've gone on some mission trips. Every mission trip is a trade up from every vacation. Trade up. Don't say no until you've let God speak to you and you've wrestled with it. So you explore that. Because here's what God does with these trips, what God does with mission. Is he takes us to a place that we are unfamiliar with. And he breaks us out of all the usual routine and out of all the comfort. And it creates an opportunity for him to speak into us in these places. It it reminds us that God is bigger than our home, than our neighborhood, than our community, than our church. He's bigger than us. And it reminds us. That Jesus is king, not just here and not just here, but of everywhere. And it reminds us that we got to live like Jesus is king everywhere we go. When you come back from that trip, there's just something you are compelled to live differently. It's a reminder to get realigned with the heart of God. That sometimes in our normal routine, we just miss that. So church, I challenge you. I challenge you to go. I challenge you to go. Well, When Jesus entered that city, riding on that donkey, it was a coronation event. Jesus is king. It was the declaration of that moment. And I wonder, have you allowed Jesus to enter your life? Have you crowned him as the king of your life? Have you surrendered that? And and this is different than just coming to church, than just spending some time with other Christians. This means you've surrendered the throne and the decision-making to Jesus. And if not, why not? What's stopping you? And maybe you've heard the, the news and the pundits and all the stories, well, I'm not big on organized religion. Maybe you're just uncertain let me, just, let me just say this. The king who leaves glory to climb onto a cross for your sake 
That's not a God who's against you. I, I believe with everything in me that the God who dies for me is a God I can trust to lead me. If he's willing to be my savior, I can trust him to be my king. And so can you. Now in a couple of weeks, we're gonna have a coronation day here. It's baptism day, October 22nd, where we're gonna celebrate those who've surrendered their lives to Jesus. And if you've not yet done that, if you've not been baptized, and that, that's, that's that moment where we put our old way of living to death, we come up in a new life with Jesus, where we say, Jesus, you get the crown, you get the throne of my heart, of my life. I'm your king and your rescuer. And if you know somebody who needs to be here for that day, invite them. Invite them to come with you, to sit with you. If you need to be here, if you've got questions, you've been wrestling with this, if you're uncertain, I want you today to stop by the Next Steps area right after service and talk to us. Ask your questions. Get into conversation with us. But if you know that you need to surrender, don't wait. Go all in with Jesus. It's the best decision you'll ever make. See, friends, there will come a day when Jesus comes again. I don't know exactly when that day will be, but I know every day that passes, we're one day closer. And I know one of two things is gonna happen. Either the end is gonna happen or your end is gonna happen. And you need to be ready. But that day that Jesus comes again, he won't be riding the donkey of peace. He will be riding the war horse and all of heaven's armies coming with him for that final moment to declare victory once and for all forever over all the forces of evil. Will you be ready? Will you be with him? See, at that moment, you're not gonna wanna be standing street side at the intersection watching it go by. You wanna be part of that parade. God, we thank you that you are the king of all kings and the king of all things, that you are the savior, that you are the warrior, that you came to do battle for us, but not against us. So you are the warrior king against all the forces of evil and hell, but you are the peace king for us. God, for all who have not yet surrendered to you, we pray that that today you would be stirring in their hearts, whether online or in person, that they would surrender to you, that they would surrender the throne of their life. God, we pray for all of us who have claimed you as king in our lives. God, we confess that there are moments too often, too many. There are areas of life that we try to usurp the throne and steal it back from you. God, we're sorry for that. Give us the courage and the wisdom to know where that is and give us give us the wisdom to surrender to you once again. And God, as we do that, may your peace flood into us and overflow through us that you might be proclaimed as king, as savior, as the only one worthy of worship. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.